Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote, named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. When most people think about propaganda, or at least when I think about propaganda, countries like Stalin's USSR or Mao's China come instantly to mind. But what I fail to think about, and I think what Americans fail to see, is the government's use, our government's use of propaganda. A few weeks ago, I interviewed Abby Hall on government use of drones. And today it is my immense pleasure to have Chris Coyne on the podcast, her co-author, He has written so many books, and he's a professor of economics at George Mason University. Their latest book is called Manufacturing Militarism, U.S. Government Propaganda in the War on Terror. That is primarily what we're going to be talking about today, and I'm so excited. All the books are fantastic, 10 out of 10 recommend. And yes, even though this topic is kind of depressing, infuriating, all of that, it's entirely fascinating in a kind of sad way. So welcome to The Great Antidote. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for having me. So before we jump in, what is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? Well, it's not so much that they don't know it, but I think it's more of a point of emphasis. And that is a fact that has a a long history, and it is well known, but I I think given the circumstances of life, it's easy to forget. And that is that Laissez-faire capitalism is the most effective system for both producing general prosperity and for allowing individuals to flourish and become the people they want to become. And I say this is known because, uh, you know, people have been discussing this for decades, if not centuries, but I think it's easy for people to forget, especially of, of the generation of your generation. And I think there's a couple in my generation too, of course. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, you know, the, the the broader idea that where capitalism works, where markets are allowed to be free and operate, they're so effective that we take them for granted. That the the, the process of wealth production and innovation is so smooth and effective, and we don't need to be aware of it. That's what makes the system partially desirable. Uh, also allows us to to neglect it and to, in, in many ways, uh, focus on the flaws rather than the beneficial aspects. The second aspect is simply world events. And, and since 2000, you have the 9-11 attacks, you have um, the, the financial crisis of 2008, and of course, the pandemic and, and everything involved in that. And so I think from from that perspective, it's very easy for younger people to kind of turn away from markets and the economic means of earning wealth and turning towards politics. And of course, all the negativity and, and, and division around the Trump administration, I think, contributed that too. And, and there's so much focus on politics now that I think it's very easy to forget, if not neglect, the important role of, of economic freedom and markets. Beautiful response. Thank you. Before we talk about your new book, I think it's essential to understand a few concepts from one of your other books. Tyranny Comes Home. In that book, you explain how many Americans believe that foreign military intervention is central to protecting our domestic freedoms at home. That's what domestic means, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) 
But what people aren't aware of is what you call the boomerang effect. Can you tell us what that is? Sure. And so, um, you know, Tyranny Comes Home is the the third book that I've worked on in kind of this series of the political economy of of U.S. foreign intervention. The the first two focused on the ability of military occupiers, U.S. military occupiers, to export democracy abroad. The second focused on the ability of U.S. policymakers, members of the military, and and the international community to foster development and aid those in assistance through foreign aid of, of various sorts. And so those kind of focused on effects abroad. But one thing that I think is very important is that we tend to think of foreign policy as happening over there somewhere foreign. And that, of course, is true. That's a a crucial aspect of it. But one thing that I think that oftentimes neglects is that you can't separate foreign policy from domestic life. That is the design implementation and execution of foreign policy can have real and long-lasting effects on the domestic fabric of, of, of life on a variety of margins, economic, political, social. And so what tyranny comes home attempts to do is to explore some of the domestic effects of a proactive military policy where, where militarism dominates militarism referring to the primacy of military action as a means of of interacting with others around the world and what my co-author abby hall and i argue is that oftentimes not always but oftentimes the acts that are undertaken abroad either preparing for foreign intervention or actually involving uh, uh, excuse me executing foreign intervention return home so it's like a you know a well-thrown boomerang if you think about it returns to the thrower and when a government adopts a aggressive proactive militaristic foreign policy we argue it oftentimes returns home and that's the logic of the boomerang effect and then what we do what we do is identify kind of several channels through which it can return back to America or to the throwing nation if you will Uh, and then apply that to a variety of case studies, things like surveillance, militarization of police. When I think about the boomerang effect, I immediately think about the NSA spying on Americans in the name of collecting information about foreign terrorists. This to me is, I don't know, it just gets me the wrong way, like so many things, but that is my biggest issue, I guess, because it was such a secret. I mean, who who knows what else is a secret at this point? Feel free to comment on that, right? Yeah. what are some other examples of the most striking cases of the boomerang effect that you think people should know about? No, I think the I think you're exactly right that the surveillance state is perhaps the the best example and for a variety of reasons. But, you know, people today tend to think of the surveillance state in in conjunction with the revolutions by Ed Snowden, who who whether people agree or disagree with what he did in, in revealing that information is beside the point. What it revealed is the the operations, or at least some of the operations, as you rightfully pointed out, we don't know the full extent of, of the operations or, or other government operations because of secrecy, and we can return to that in a moment. But we know some of the operations, and we know that they were extensive, and that there is good reason to believe they were in violation of uh, the Constitution, um, that they, they violated the fundamental rights and liberties of certainly uh, 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 members of the 
U.S. population, um, and and one can argue members of foreign societies as well. And so you you bring in that international law as well. But you know, in some sense, it's it's it wasn't known and isn't new. But in another sense, it is. You know, people forget. Uh, people have a short memory. They they suffer from presentism. Whatever's happening mm-hmm. now, they they focus on. But you know, in the uh, a lot of these issues were at play during Vietnam. Um, there's something called the Church Committee, uh, and what the Church Committee did, which was a, a government investigation of illegal surveillance by the CIA, the FBI. Uh, and the NSA. Um, and so if you, you know, and these, these reports are readily available. Um, and if one was to go look through them, um, they would, and, and they're thick. I mean, they're very dense. There's volumes of, the, of these reports. But if you, if you read through them, what you see is really Ed Snowden didn't reveal anything new. What, what, what it was, it was like the same old. The, the difference now, which perhaps is worrisome, is it's the same stuff, but with more advanced technology. Which, which allows the government to be more effective and efficient in its surveillance activities. Um, and of course, even before the church committee report in the 70s, you can go back before that, and the, and the U.S. government was doing this. You know, the, the, the surveillance state is actually what motivated the book. When, when Snowden made those revelations, I started reading. So I was like, you know, I know this thing called the NSA. I know this agency exists, but I really don't know a lot about it. So I just started doing some background reading, and, and the NSA and its current manifestation, I think, was founded in the early 50s, 1952 or 53. But if you start going back further, it didn't just fall from on high. You start seeing that, that like a lot of government bureaus, the NSA was simply a, a reforming and rebranding of existing agencies. And you can actually trace it all the way back to you know, the early 1900s um, and, and the American occupation of the, the Philippines uh, in the late 1800s into the early 1900s. And efforts by by American occupiers to surveil and control insurgents in the Philippines. And then when that occupation ended, the people that had set up that, that, that apparatus in the Philippines came back to America uh, and took that knowledge and those skills that they had developed and eventually implemented them domestically. And, and that's the origins of the surveillance state here. And uh, that's kind of highlights the boomerang effect quite nicely. The the original intention, you know, in that occupation of the Philippines, it's not like anyone sat down and said, well, let me set up this surveillance apparatus, then I can use it against the American populace when we're done here. And certainly no one could have envisioned the war on terror following the September 11th attacks. And you can, so you can see how these initial efforts to intervene in other societies and control other people can have these really long-lasting effects that influence the fabric of American life, uh, and so I think it very nicely captures the point. As you and as you pointed out, that's only a small slice of what we know. I mean, there's so much we don't know uh, because of the secrecy, and and that secrecy then leads into a whole host of interesting dilemmas. It kind of makes you think, like, what else is happening that we just don't know about that we easily could see, but that is covered in such a way that we just aren't aware. Um, But speaking about the war on terror, what is the difference between that and traditional military intervention? Yeah. So I I think the, in some sense, not much, in another sense, many things. And and, and in some sense, the the many things is the context. And so the the uniqueness of of the war on terror, I think, and when I say it's the same, there's, there's a lot the same. It's 
the U.S. government utilizing the national security state. So that's the, the military itself, the surveillance apparatus we were just talking about, and the whole array of, of bureaus and agencies and contractors involved to engage in, in a, an array of, of, of operations under the broad purview of national security. But I think the difference and the unique aspect of it is, is there's a few. Um, one is the fact that there was no defined target. So it's not like, you know, in, in other words, where, where where there's a defined enemy, whether that's a country or a military or a specific group where you can say, OK, we are fighting. We, the United States government, is fighting against that group that can be kind of delineated, however you delineate it. Instead, this was a, a war on terrorism and terrorists. And, it, you know, there, if you start trying to unpack that terminology uh, in those categories, you realize it's so broad and it really depends on who's doing the defining. Um, and so it's, it's a, it's a faceless enemy, a nameless enemy, and that makes it quite problematic. And, and because what would it mean to defeat and win the war on terror? If you go back to the early days, right after 9-11, when, when George W. Bush is speaking to the media and then to Congress, you know, he, he, he uses very broad terminology. We won't stop until all terror is eradicated globally, which in some sense is an absurd claim because, Terror is a psychological effect that has been part of human existence since humans existed. Some people have utilized a variety of tools to instill fear and terror in other people. And so you can't get rid of that. Um, so, so in some sense, the war itself, to the extent it was a war, it was unwinnable by definition. But then even then, uh, you know, the, the other issue and, and the unique aspect of this is, is the nature of the battlefield. Where again, it wasn't like a war was taking place in a certain predefined area when, when something like terrorism and terrorists is the, is the goal. It is the entire globe that is the battlefield. And that's problematic um, because it allows the government executing that war. So driven by the United States and then other allies that were involved to have kind of carte blanche to do whatever it wants in the name of engaging in warfare for supposedly the public and global good. Nothing's off limits. That then opens the door for things like surveillance. These things all feed into one another because if, if there's no predefined enemy, that means everyone is a potential terrorist threat, including citizens, including you, me, everyone else. That means that we need to be controlled, surveilled, and monitored. Uh, and, um, and that's problematic uh, because... If you understand the dynamics of how governments operate and government power operates, once you kind of let the genie out of the, the bottle, to use a, a well-known phrase, it's very hard to get it back in. Or some people talk about, you know, once you get the toothpaste out of the tube, it's really hard to get back in. And it's the same kind of thing here. And so I think that's what really makes it unique and also problematic. There's no enemy. There's no way. I don't know how you would declare victory. Um, you know, it's kind of like the war on drugs. What does that mean? Does it mean you er eradicate all drugs in the world? Uh, that's never going to happen. Uh, and and uh, then the nature of it is is so grand and broad uh, that it, that it really creates a set of of, of challenges for uh, abuses uh, of or potential and actual abuses of government power over the lives of, of citizens. And 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 the challenge, the ultimate challenge, is this. You know. People view their government, at least in, in a free society, and the way it's kind of pitched the people, the role of government is to protect our, our 
our person and property, our freedoms and liberties. And that's potentially the case. But of course, when you concentrate significant amounts of power in the hands of a small number of people in the name of protecting freedoms, person and property, they can also use that same power to undermine those things. And that's the the risk and concern. Um, and, and, and that's what I think is the core challenge with things like the war on terror in general, but I think the security state in general, well, well beyond the war on terror. And we'll get into the effect on free society in a little bit. What I was thinking about as you were talking about the war on terror won't end until we've eradicated terror is that that instills terror. So it's kind of ironic and never ending. It kind of gives this undefined kind of uncontrollable power because you're afraid that there is terror. And so the government is kind of terrorizing you. And I don't know. No, I think you're exactly right. It, it, when you, any, anytime the, the government elevates something and put places on a pedestal, kind of makes it issue number one or number two, a high ranked issue in, in, in people's minds, it's going to elevate that in terms of people's, what people pay attention to. And, you know, there is an argument and scholars have talked about this, people that talk about and study terrorism, that when you give legitimacy to terrorist, terrorism and terrorist organizations, you actually incentivize terrorism, which is counterintuitive to a lot of people, but also counterproductive from the perspective of the stated goal of eradicating terrorism. And so think about, you know, think about something like Al-Qaeda. Think about the, the marketing victory for them as an organization when the most powerful government in the world gives them legitimacy by saying, we need to fight this organization because they pose such a significant threat to Americans and to others. I mean, you can't get a better endorsement. And that's crucial for things like fundraising, recruitment, uh, carrying out operations, and so on. Likewise, when you when an organization carries out an attack, and then you prioritize and highlight that by saying, well, we need to respond now and we need to invest a significant amount of resources in combating this. Again, it legitimizes them and actually strengthens them. And so that's just one slice where activities in the name of counterterrorism might in principle and in practice actually have the counterproductive effect of, of, of increasing and expanding terrorist activities. And, um, you know, again, that's hard for a lot of people to get their heads around, but I think it's an important and oftentimes overlooked point. With all this in mind, let's talk about the new book. Um, so in order for the military, the government to expand this, I don't know, industry type against terror on this in this war, they need a good marketing strategy because some of it, I mean, especially the breach of our privacy doesn't seem like a good selling point. Um, you use the word propaganda to talk about this. So how do you define it? And what are the three characteristics? Yeah, so, um, you know, propaganda, it, it's a loaded term. And so I, I do want to spend a, a couple minutes just talking about it because, um, you know, I think it's one of those words that kind of gets thrown around a lot. Um, and so, you know, the way that Abby and I think about propaganda is as it does have a negative connotation the way we use it. And that negative connotation is to provide information that is either 
biased or misleading to promote a certain political cause. And so the, the first kind of characteristic, the way we define it and delineate it, is that propaganda is purposefully biased or false. The second is that uh, it's used to promote some kind of political cause. And the third is that it's undesirable from the perspective of the recipients uh, because they are unable to make an informed judgment. Um, they, they only are receiving part of, of the information. And, you know, some people will say, well, what's the difference between propaganda and advertising? You know, and, and, and I think the big difference is that the way we think about it is, is that first characteristic of biased or false. And of course, you might say, well, someone could a- advertise based on biased or, fa- or false information, and, and certainly they could. But this leads then to the nature of the government doing it versus private actors. And in order to, to point that, to, to, to get at this, you have to think about the nature of information control and, and the market. And so in the national security state, as you and I were just discussing when we were talking about the surveillance state, one of the really key challenges is secrecy and the monopoly control over information. Now, you can see why people might make the argument that the national security state needs to maintain secrecy. They'd say, look, there's matters of national security and there's certain crucial information that if it fell into the wrong hands could do great harm to the very people that the American government is tasked with protecting. You say, all right, I I get that. that. That's not you know, a preposterous claim. But of course, the risk is you, when you grant people monopoly control over information in the name of protecting people, as we were just talking about, they can use that information to manipulate people. And so one of the differences with advertising of, you know, think about any kind of consumer product is there's contestability. There are ways for people to check that information either directly or indirectly, directly by saying, you know, you can have a consumer reports saying that this product claims that it does X, Y, and Z, but we did tests on it and it actually does A, B, and C, or it doesn't do uh, you know, X, Y, and Z, and we can report on that. Uh, indirectly, people can check that by saying, look, they offer this product. I instead offer this product or service, uh, and it is better than theirs or my competitors for whatever reasons. And that competitive process allows for contestability over products. There's no analogous mechanism in, the, in, the, in government. Um, national security is carried out at the national level. So it's not like you have contestability among subunits or subnational units of government. You might say, well, there's checks and balances in place. There's congressional oversight committees. There's Various, uh, you know, there's like this, uh, the, the inspector general that, that, that kind of serves as a check and auditor of government agencies. And, and those things do, do some things. But again, in the, in the, in the realm of national security, a lot of those checks are severe, severely weakened. The reason why is because things like congressional oversight committees rely on the security agencies they oversee to supply them with information. And, that information can be partial, it can be concealed, it can be manipulated to protect the interests of those in the agency from their overseers. And so that's the the real challenge, and that's what opens up the door to propaganda. And 
it's problematic in the realm of, of national security precisely because government can use its priority, its proprietary monopoly information and its prior, its position of power to do things that are actually at, at the odds of the interests of citizens and citizens have no recourse outside of things like whistleblowers um, who reveal that information. So you and Abby are economists. How is your approach to propaganda different from that of other scholars? Yeah, I, I think it complements it. But, you know, and you are certainly right that a lot of discussions of propaganda take place, for instance, in the field of communications and communication study. Political scientists have talked about it. But I think what economics brings to this is, is the following. One is a focus on the point we were just discussing, what economists call information asymmetries. Information asymmetry refers to situations where parties have different information. Um, and that, th that exists in life in general. Uh, you know, anytime we interact or, or many times we interact with other people, they have information that we don't have access to and vice versa. But again, there, there's various mechanisms in place that alleviate the frictions caused by those information asymmetries. Um, in government, and especially in the realm of national security, those mechanisms are limited, if, if not altogether absent. And so I think that focus on economists, focus on information asymmetries and the frictions, what, what people call either market failures in the case of markets or government failures in the case of government, um, is, is one key aspect. And then I think the other aspect is focusing on the economic analysis of government, what, what falls under the purview of political economy or public choice economics to understand how the political apparatus operates, the incentives at work, the epistemic or knowledge issues uh, at work, and then how those things play out in the realm of, in this case, national security policy. How is propaganda, especially in relation to the war on terror, how has it evolved over the years and what does it look like? Sure. And so, you know, uh, propaganda has always been around, especially in war making. And, and, you know, one of the things we try to highlight, which, you know, isn't a novel point. Historians have long talked about this, um, is that you know, you know, the American government has utilized propaganda in war making just like all other governments have. And, you know, for long periods of time, the, the American government didn't hide this during the, the world wars. There was specific agencies that, whose purpose was to uh, control information flows. You know, they, they, it wasn't called like the 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 the, the uh, agency of propaganda. You know, but it was called the you know you had the the agency of public information or committee for public information, and they were supposed to provide citizens with um, you know news related to the war effort. Uh, but of course, if you now that we have access to the information behind these efforts, the the purpose was to provide select information to uh, both obtain initially and then maintain support for government efforts. And also to, that, that included direct war for the war itself, but also the various sacrifices uh, that people are going to make because wars are costly. Uh, and that can be things like, you know, people dying abroad, but also just in your daily life. And so you can go find these, you know, propaganda posters of victory gardens. What were victory gardens? Well, people have to grow their own food in order to, you know, uh, uh, save scarce resources to that, that can be used for the war effort. You know, and, and in a wealthy society, of course, and an advanced civilization, 
people tend to grow gardens for a hobby, not for their primary source of food. That's typically a sign of poverty. Um, but in this case, in the case of Victory Gardens, the U.S. government was encouraging people to, to basically uh, grow food as part of their primary source of, of food intake, precisely because war making uh, is uh, uh, anti-development. It runs counter to development. It makes people poorer. And that's just one example. The difference today, I think, this really started even in the early days of the, the war on terror, is, is the efforts are a lot more kind of covert. There's no agency that, you know, it, that, that is tasked publicly with, um, you know, producing propaganda. Uh, so you, it's not as easy to see. We don't have the posters, you know, like the famous I want you poster with Uncle Sam pointing. We don't, you don't have that kind mm -hmm. of stuff now. Uh, instead, what you have is more kind of covert and, and in, indirect propaganda. Uh, and, and, and that takes the, that takes the form of, um, select information that's provided to the public. It takes the form of, uh, uh, partnering with members of the media, both in terms of access to information, access to officials, and the parroting of certain information provided by government. Uh, it takes the form of things that have become kind of normalized in life. Um, you know, like most people, most Americans, when they go to a sporting event, and they, you know, they, they're sitting there at the beginning of the sporting event and there's a, some military showing, whether it's a flyover, whether it's reuniting a, a member of the military with their family, whether it's the color guard and all that. Um, they just they don't think twice about it. Um, um, so there's a lots, lots that kind of normalize militarism in our in our life. Um, and and um, so you have kind of this combination of direct and indirect effects to to provide select information to the citizenry in the name of providing general support for the military, but certainly support for government efforts abroad as well. The central element of propaganda is an exaggeration from the actual threat and the necessity of proactive military response. How do you actually estimate the real threat of terrorism? Yeah, so that's a great question. And, and you know, there's a political scientist by the name of John Mueller and, and his co-author, uh, I think his name is Matt, Matt Stewart. Um, they've written several books on this, and we talk about this in, um, in Manufacturing Militarism. And, and I think we talk about it in Tyranny Comes Home, too, Abby and I. And the way they you do it typically is you look at number of lives lost historically. I mean, you have to look backwards because... Um, you have to try to get a gauge on the actual threat of terrorism. And, um, of course, there's pros and cons to that approach, or there's limitations. There, like anything, there's certain things that history tells us and other things it, it can't tell us. And so what can it tell us? It can tell us, historically, the, the magnitude of the threat of terrorism as compared to other risks. And this is one of the great things that, that John Mueller has done in his work, is he'll say, look... Let's compare the, the likelihood, the odds of uh, someone, and then you can break it down by all categories, globally, Americans being subject to harm or death from terrorism and compare it to a whole host of other activities. And they don't have to be criminal activities, just daily activities, driving a car, flying a plane, taking a bath. Um, and, and they, they have these, you know, they summarize this in tables and it's, it's staggering, you know, because 
again, you know, this goes back to our earlier discussion about the nature of terror and kind of promoting it in fear. But, you know, the, the, the very blunt data that they prevent shows historically the odds of an American citizen and even globally, you know, someone a non-American, but, but an American citizen being subjected or suffering under terrorism is, is minuscule. It's much smaller than dying from a car accident. It's much smaller than, than, you know, dying from drowning in a bathtub, getting struck by lightning, having a deer uh, run across the street when you're in your car and causing your death. And, um, you know, it's, it's extreme. And, and that, that include, that's when you include 9-11. And 9-11 is what we call an outlier. It's not, it's not the norm. And so typically when you look at data, what you'd want to do is, is you can look at it with outliers included, but then you want to also exclude outliers and, and kind of take a look at the data without those because they're anomalies rather than the norm. And when you cut out 9-11 um, from, the, from the data, the, the, the odds are, are really in your favor um, of, of, of not suffering harm or death due to terrorist attacks. Now, what doesn't that tell us? Well, that doesn't tell us about the future, um, because of course, while, while history can can provide insight into the world, it, it doesn't mean that that that's how the future is going to look. Um, and so, someone might respond, and people have, and say, "Okay, that's great. That's how things were in the past." But what about you know, right after nine eleven? What about the year after? And and what about the future? And things might get worse, and that's possible. But then that leads us to kind of going back to our discussion earlier about. The, the the risk of current and future terrorists, but also the possibility that undertaking activities to counter those things might actually lead to more terrorism. And so if you look, for instance, in the wake of, of 9-11 and the war on terror, the number of terrorist attacks globally increased. And you say, well, why did they increase? Well, because the U.S. government and, and allied governments intervene in a variety of, of societies around the world, and that incentivized terrorism um, to counter the occupation. Uh, and uh, uh, so you can actually make the, the argument that at a global level, the war on terror had the opposite effect. You get the rise of uh, ISIS um, as part of the war on terror. That didn't exist prior. Now, again, domestically, people say, well, there's no terrorist attacks here um, since 9-11, you know, or large-scale terrorist attacks. And then you have to think about issues of correlation versus causation. So, of course, correlation are when things move together, they're correlated. Causation is when one factor causes another. And it might be that the war on terror had a causal effect on preventing a, a, a large-scale terrorist attack domestically, but it's also quite possible that those are correlates, that there, there, there's no causal relationship. That is, you know, no 9-11 happened before 9-11. Um, before the war on, tour, uh, war on terror started. And so then you can start unpacking that and then thinking about which, you know, the, the causal effects as well. And so that's how I would begin to think about those issues, which are, are quite nuanced and complex, but still quite important. So I want to ask you kind of briefly about propaganda in the movies and in TV shows. As I kind of was jumping into these issues, I started noticing it left and right, how in Homeland, uh, spying on Americans is glorified and all that. What effect does that have? Is it intentional, like propaganda leads you to think, or is it ingrained in our culture in a way that no one really thinks about it? 
Yeah, and and so these are hard issues, and they're and they're interdisciplinary issues. And I'm not sure I have a, a, a you know, kind of a single answer to it. I think this. I think that I don't think that showing a movie with war making in it or with spying or surveillance magically all of a sudden makes people say, okay, now I, you know, yesterday I didn't like, um, you know, these things or I was against them and now I saw this movie and I'm for it. I, I, at least for most people, I don't think that's the case. What I think can, can happen though is I think that it can, like on anything, I think it becomes a, a, a normal part of life. And it normalizes certain things on certain margins. People become comfortable with it. Uh, so, so let's step back from Hollywood for a minute and just think about, this goes back to your opening question about, you know, what kind of things you know, is your generation aware of? Here's one you might think about. For anyone who, who wasn't old enough or wasn't born yet after the 9-11 attacks, when they go through airport security, they'll never experience like what I experienced prior to 9-11. And I, I didn't experience what people before in the in the you know in, before I was born in the in the late seventies experienced with air, airport security, which was quite minimal. So what do I mean by that? Now you go through airport security, you know it's very regimented. Um, there's there's a lot more freedom for members of the TSA to um, certainly look through your items, if not engage in activities that in other walks of life would be considered assault um, or or, or sexual battery in some cases. But those things are kind of normalized. And if you don't subject yourself to them, if you kind of push back, you're viewed as an outlier, a troublemaker, a rebel rouser. Um, and, and, and so what does that do? It normalizes it. It's This is how things were uh, after 9-11 because there was a crisis situation. And now it's how things always will be until they change again. And when they change again, I doubt they'll revert backwards. If anything, they'll become more extensive. So what does that mean? Well, now take that and start thinking about things like, um, you know, all the military stuff we see around in sporting events in, in, in Hollywood. Uh, uh, again, no single act drums up all this support for war making, but it normalizes it. And the involvement of the DOD in these kind of things, you know, the, the problem is it's going to be biased in one direction. What I mean by that is, you know, the way we talk about it in the book and as we explored this, really the, 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 the Department of Defense and other government agencies involved in this, they, they subsidize movie production. They allow people to have access to military equipment, to um, training facilities, to members of the military, um, but they have influence over uh, the material. They get sign off on it. And so, of course, if you're filming a video, a movie, pardon me, that you know has a military element to it, and you want the the setting, you want the the, the equipment, and you can get access to that through the Department of Defense. That's nice from a bottom line standpoint, as compared to having to go create or finance all this on your own. Uh, and and then you ask yourself, okay, but what what's the influence of the military going to be like? Let's say it was a uh, a, a film that was anti-war or anti-government or revealed, doesn't have to be anti-government, just it revealed the true atrocities of war, or it had an element that highlighted the atrocities done by U.S. troops in, in war in a historical setting. Um, that might very well be softened, if not altogether taken out, but under the influence of um, you know, the, the, the military, the American military, and that softens the message. Um, you know, and, and some of the, some movies, 
and, um, you know, have explicit propaganda content. I mean, think about like something like Rocky Four, you know, where it's Rocky Balboa, the American versus the Soviets. Um, it's a, it's a, the whole setup is kind of playing off that. And again, I have no issue with that. I'm, I, I believe in a free society and people should be able to make pro or anti, anti-war movies as they see fit. But I think when government gets involved in, in either financing or influencing movies or, or subsidizing them, it does create a, a challenge in terms of the control of information. And so, so I don't want to overstate our argument. It's not like people go see a movie and then all of a sudden they are rah, rah, let's go to war. I think it's just another element that normalizes it and, and one we should be aware of. Um, and, and I'm fine enjoying those type of movies. I, I enjoy them myself. I, I like Homeland. I like lots of shows like that, even though I work in this area. But it is something that I'm cognizant of and I, I think about when I see it. And I mean, I had no idea that they even had that influence as minimal as it might be, which is just really something that we should be aware of. Okay, so to close up, the main takeaway from the book is that propaganda that's meant to allow the military to have its freedom to protect us might not be making us all that much safer. And ultimately, that threatens the foundations of our free society. So how does it threaten us and how worried should we be about this? Yeah, so so my frame of kind of frame of viewing all this is, is one I raised earlier, which is, you know, I, I view the, the state apparatus as a potential threat to the well-being, the freedom and liberty of individuals that live under that state, in addition to those that live outside of that state, but are, are subjected to its uh, influence. And of course, this idea is not novel to me. People have talked about this for centuries. Um, and, and it's a fundamental challenge in constitutional political economy. How do you and can you simultaneously empower government, but constrain it to only use that monopoly on power for good? War making the national security state, to my way of thinking, is that concern on steroids. It's, it's the area of government activity that poses the gravest threat precisely because we are talking about things like highly centralized control over information, highly controlled centralized power related to weaponry, actual uh, weapons of war making to nukes. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, the presumption, and this is why I think propaganda matters, the presumption that most people have is that those things are, are used for good. You know, the, the people on the right and the left, in, in, certainly in America and other societies as well, they differ on certain issues, but one where there's tends to be great amounts of unity um, is is the national security state. I mean, you know, you go you go look uh, and 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 you have the debacle in Afghanistan. So you have the debacle in the war itself, but then the exit under under President Biden. And what happens just a couple of weeks later? Congress passes a, a record budget for uh, the base budget for for the Pentagon, uh, and this it's kind of this reinforcing self extending apparatus, and so. That's the threat, the threat to freedom, liberty, the dynamism of the market economy, all in the name of protecting those things. And so one of the things that I've tried to emphasize is that rather than putting militarism uh, on a pedestal and kind of our primary way of interacting with people globally, domestically, and so on as, as the primary form, perhaps we should reevaluate that. 
rather than have the default position being that the military and the national security state does good and, re- and, and produces liberal outcomes. I'm using liberal here in the, in the classic sense of the term, not the modern kind of liberal Republican or conservative terminology. Rather than assuming it, it, it generates liberal outcomes, the default position to my way of thinking should be that it generates illiberal outcomes and that it is an apparatus that should only be utilized in the rarest of uh, moments on the rarest of occasions rather than the default for how we interact with people and, and the default for, for how we organize our, our relations with people domestically and internationally. And that requires uh, a citizenry to care about it. Uh, and, and certainly those in the national security state have zero incentive to change their behavior, just the opposite. Uh, certainly those in Washington, D.C. have no incentive to shrink the security state. Uh, and, and I think you see that. I think that plays out if you look at those entangled with it. And so that's what I'm, I'm hoping to get people to think about, um, at least to be a minimum. I'd be happy if they were aware of it, even if they rejected the implications of it. Um, but but more broadly, I would hope that they might think about kind of shifting the emphasis of, of how they think about um, international relations, domestic relations between people, but also the role of the national security state in those relations. Thank you so much, Chris. Before we go, what is one thing you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? Yeah, so this is a good question. It's a hard question, but a good question to reflect on, I think. So so thank you. I don't, I don't know if these things are, are things I, I like held, a, you know, it's not like a zero one where I shifted completely, but but I, I'd highlight a couple things um, that I, I at least emphasize differently now. Um, one is the role of expertise. And so before I went and got my, you know, my PhD and, and my, my graduate degree, I kind of thought of, of academics and people with ex- a lot of experience and um, uh, lots of initials after their name as an expert and you could acquire expertise. And, and, and to some extent, that's right. I mean, if you study, I study economics and political economy, so I'm going to know more about those things than someone that doesn't. But my view of expertise has shifted, which is, you know, in, instead of viewing it as some kind of end state where you can know, uh, uh, you know, have some final state of knowledge about the complexities of the world. I think a better way to view things is as being an expert in learning. And that requires an open-endedness to to realizing that every interaction is an opportunity for learning, but also a, a, an appreciation of negative knowledge, that there's things that we can't know about the world um, and, and, and having humility. Um, you know, and, and that certainly matters in the, in the topics we've been talking about. Two other real quick things that I've kind of emphasized later in my life, but I think are important is, you know, one is really straightforward, but I, I wish people did it more. And that is walking. And that sounds weird, but, you know, for, for a lot of my life, you know, when we're young, we, as kids, we run around and we play and, and we experience life. And then as we get into school, then we, we study, we go to work, we have families, we, we place less emphasis on those things. We're too busy to do things. But just walking and purposeful walking is, I, I've made it an emphasis in my life. Um, and that's per, part, partially for physical um, benefits. It's walking is one of the best forms of exercise. Just for, It's correlated with enormous benefits from heart health, um, to 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 weight and lots of things, but mental health also. So if you if you read studies on this, just going out and taking a walk, like no technology, like no po- even podcasts, no checking texts, no social media, just walk 
like almost, I mean, you're walking somewhere, but aimlessly, like you're just enjoying your environment is great for mental health, but it's also awesome for creativity. So I always try to tell students, undergraduates, graduate students, like even if it's 15 minutes, 20 minutes a day, and everyone can find that. We all waste time during the day, um, you know, whether it's TV, social media, email, just go outside and walk, even if it's around the block and it will benefit you. And related to that, my final point is the other thing I've kind of become more attuned to is the, you know, the role of impact in the world. And, and again, you know, I'm around a lot of academics and policymakers. So there's, you need to be impactful. You need to, to publish here or, or have a policy impact. And certainly there's something to that. But one thing that I, I've really become attuned to is I think that's the wrong way to view things. I, I now view things, the world is kind of all being interconnected and everyone has an impact by our very existence because you change the world, even if it's in ways we take for granted and don't think about by your very existence on a daily basis. You do things that impact other people and lots of other people and the environment around you. Uh, and so that, that when we appreciate that, you realize that every single person has an enormous impact on the world throughout their life. And then when you start thinking about that and get your head around that, you start thinking about, okay, even little micro interactions between people can have enormous impacts. And so then we start focusing on, well, how can I use those little micro interactions to be the best person I can, but to you know, improve the well-being of others as well? And I mean, think about it. If you have a negative interaction with someone uh, in, during your day, a lot of people worry about that and they think about it and they reflect on it. And that helps realize how we have an impact. Because when you have a positive impact or someone has a positive impact on you, you also think about that and you're appreciative and it's great. So one thing I've really, you know, over the last several years really focused on is kind of the, you know, on a daily basis, whether it's with family, friends, people at work, people over email, just being self-aware of how you interact with people. Um, and I think this is especially important in the, in the kind of divided world we're in now, especially with social media and everything and trying to see the best in other people's intentions and being purposeful in how we react to people, even when they're doing things that are the equivalent of being rude or, you know, to you. Um, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm highly imperfect still, and I fail daily on this, but it's something I'm, I'm aware of. And I, I try to think about, and I think if more people did that, they'd personally live a better life, but I, I think it would contribute to a, a better world as well. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest for their time and insight, and I'd like to thank you for listening to The Great Antidote podcast. The Great Antidote is sound engineered by Rich Goyette. If you have any questions, any guests or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at gmail.com. Thank you.